Okay, see what we have. Okay. I know who did this one. It was an agnostic with insomnia and dyslexia. He stayed up all night wondering if there really was a dog. At the end, I'll give them uh, 60 minutes to think about that. Dear Ajahn, please advise how to tame the monkey mind. First of all, you have to know what a monkey mind is. So once upon a time, <laughs> there was a monkey who was at a katina ceremony, not here, but somewhere else, and at the ceremony, they always go to these big ceremonies in Sri Lanka because there's always somebody drops an apple or drops a mango or something and the monkey can, can take it. But this particular monkey, uh, they hadn't started the lunch yet, so he was listening to the sermon by the head monk. And the sermon from the head monk, this, the monk started talking about meditation. And he mentioned the word monkey mind. And so the monkey was really interested in that. They're talking about us. But then he soon understood that the monkey mind was a bad mind. It was a difficult mind and you had to overcome it, you had to tame it. You had to discipline it. And the monkey thought, what's wrong with the monkey mind? I've had them ever since I was born. I am a monkey. And so the monkey got very upset. And the more he listened, the more he heard this monk defame monkeys. And now this is our modern age. It's, you know, the 21st century. You can't do that. We have, like, equity and respect. So, he swung back you know, into his forest. He hadn't got any, any um, mangoes or anything yet. And he said, you wouldn't believe what those monks are saying about us. They say a monkey mind is a bad mind, a terrible mind, something which you have to get rid of. And that really upset the tribe of monkeys living in the forest. They can't say that about monkeys. That's really unfair. We're going to complain to the World Wildlife Fund. We're going to get David Attenborough to support us. Monkey minds are okay. What do these monks know about monkey minds? This is slander. This is defamation. This is not right. And all those monks were jumping up and down, complaining about slander of you know, the monkey mind. And then the head monkey who'd been around a while, said, look at you, you're all jumping up and down, making a fuss, that's the monkey mind. And all the monks said, oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> We've all got monkey minds, because we're monkeys, what can you expect? But the head monk said, there is a way of training the monkey mind, so it doesn't appear anymore. So what's that? And the head monkey said, I've seen the, the monks and the nuns do this. It's called meditation. And all the monkeys jumped up and said, yeah, let's do meditation. Yeah, we want to do some meditation. Let's do meditation. Showing the monkey mind again. He said, look, said the head monk, I'm not quite sure how it's done, but I have seen these people, they get these little cushions 
We don't have any cushions in the jungle, but we do have some grass and leaves. Collect some grass and leaves, each one of you. So all the monkeys went out there into the forest. They collected a nice bunch of grass and leaves and made a zafu, you know, like Tibetan cushions, these things. Of course, some of those monkeys made two zafus. And they all, what do we do next? Now you go and sit on it and just uh, put your legs, uh, sit down, your right leg over your left leg, your right paw over your left paw, straighten your backs, and all these monkeys straighten their backs. Close your eyes and watch your breathing. That was the first time monkeys ever meditated. They were sitting there in the middle of the jungle meditating for about 60 seconds. And that was exaggerating. (laughs) And then one of the monkeys lifted up their paw. Excuse me, I've been thinking. They said, you know that we had arranged to go and raid the local banana plantation while all the lay people were at this katina ceremony. They won't be around to, to protect it. So I've been thinking about it. I can't get it out of my mind. He said, why don't we go and raid the banana plantation first, and then we'll meditate. We won't eat the bananas yet, because it's not lunchtime, but we'll get it all prepared. So all the monks said, yeah, I've been having the same thought as well. So they all got up from their zafus, and they swung through the, the jungle to the banana plantation. No one was there. So the monkeys stole a lot of bananas, and they didn't eat them. They brought them all back, put them in the center of the clearing, and then they went to the Zafus again and started meditating. They put their right leg over their left leg, the right paw over the left paw, straighten their backs, tuck their chin in, close their eyes, breathing in, breathing out. Excuse me, <laughs> said one of the monkeys. You know, I've been thinking. You know, before we eat those bananas, you've got to peel them first. So let's get that out of the way. Once all the bananas are peeled, we won't eat any yet, then we can meditate. Now, why not have to think about this? So they got that all out of the way. Got out from their seats, peeled all those bananas. And with all the bananas peeled, they put them in a big heap in the center so they could get back on their saffrons and start meditating. Right leg over their left leg, right paw of the left paw. The, the, the fingers just resting lightly on each other. And then... And close their eyes, watch their breath go in, breath go out. It was so quiet for about 30 seconds. Excuse me, said one of the monkeys. You know, I've been thinking, before we eat those bananas, we have to put them in our mouth. (laughs) So let's put it in our mouths first. We won't eat them, we wait till lunchtime. Once they're in our mouth, we won't have to think about that. So all the monkeys agreed, they got up from their zafu cushions and they went out to those part of bananas and they put a banana in their mouth. And of course, some monkeys put two bananas in their mouth and there was one who put three. <laughs> they didn't eat them yet. It's meditation time. So with the bananas in their mouth, <laughs> they sat down on their zafus, right paw of their left paw, uh, right leg over their left leg, right paw of their left paw, back straight, close their eyes, heads down to watch their breath. And once everybody started, and 
eyes were all closed. All those bananas vanished down those monkeys' tummies. <laughs> and then they all jumped off and went away. That's what we call the monkey mind. I'll do this first and then I'll meditate. Even when you sit down. I'll get rid of this and then I'll meditate. That's a monkey mind according to monkeys. <laughs> so are you a monkey? Do you want to get things out of the way and then I'll meditate? Sometimes here there's nothing much to get out of the way. But over in, when you go back to the world, there's so many things will take precedence. I'll just get this one email out of the way, then I'll meditate. I'll just get this one conversation out of the way. I'll just watch this one cup, and then I'll meditate. That's called the monkey mind. So how do you overcome that monkey mind? Just give priority to meditation, to stillness. And then the mind doesn't want to go anywhere. It likes being in this moment. Bananas will be there for you later if you want them. But instead of um, just uh, trying to stop... And also, the real question was how to stop the restlessness. And the restlessness, as I've mentioned many times to you, is stopped, it's tamed. When you prefer silence, you prefer calm, peace to all these other duties which you can do but you don't really have to do. And sometimes all the things which you think about, which you plan for, all the things which I plan for hardly ever happen. We often say, all the things which you fear, you think which might go wrong, they don't happen at all to me. It's usually something much worse. In other words, it's not worth planning. Never do today what you can put off until tomorrow because you might die tonight. That's my motto. So in other words, why do we always have to get things done when really most of the things you are convinced you have to do, you don't have to. It's a much better way of not projecting onto the future. If you want to prepare for the future, the best way is to relax in the present moment. So, even that monkey mind business, I realized that in restlessness, even when I was a student. Final exams, the, half an hour, the hour I had for lunch, basically half an hour by the time I walked back to the college, I had no lunch, went back to my room, and let go of the past, let go of the future, because I needed. The past to me was that morning exam, the future was the next exam coming in half an hour's time. It was really important, so people said. I think you know my comment. If I'd only known I was going to become a monk, I wouldn't have bothered so much with those final exams. But nevertheless, I didn't know that at the time, so it was important. Imagine how much stress that can be. So what I did was to 
um, let go of the past, let go of the future, which I could do very easily, because I knew to do well in the future, I had to look after this present moment. And when I did look at this present moment, I was shocked. Sometimes we think we're mindful, we're not really. We're half mindful. When I looked at my body, I was shaking out of the nerves of having to do an important exam in the next half hour. It was stressful doing those final exams. But once you notice you're shaking, then it's very easy to notice it, be mindful, be kind, and you notice the shaking start to stop. And it gets very calm. You know, I knew how to relax my body. But the next thing which I noticed, all that thinking, all that monkey mind restlessness and worry, that that had tired my mind out. Mind out. My brain was exhausted. I gave this simile the first time I wrote this, um, uh, this example. It was like a tea bag which had already been used twice. It didn't have any oomph left in it. My brain was drained. And, but what I did notice when you're still, the energy comes back to your brain. So that meant through stillness, that was the best way to prepare for the future. I could relax, and I had more energy in the afternoon exam. When I said the other day about two students getting the Beasley Medal here in Western Australia, and one student getting the second uh, medal, I think that's probably one of the reasons why. Exam technique. So you can not think about the future, not worry, and then you can restore your energies. And then you do well. So that's a monkey mind. Okay, I don't know if I've done this question before. Could you please explain the difference between motivation and intention again? Again, motivation is where you're coming from. Intention is where you're going to. So the motivation has an emotional quality about it. You know, where are you coming from? Is it from anger, ill will, uh, from from, um, uh, compassion, from... uh, they have this other beautiful quality in Buddhism, mudita, sympathetic joy, where other people do have some success. And instead of getting jealous, you get this beautiful sense of mudita, you rejoice along with them. At our Katina ceremony on Sunday, all the stuff which we get, everybody joins in. I rejoice in the gifts which are being given. And that means that you get as much good karma, you get an equal share of the merits, just as the person who gave those things. It's a beautiful act. Instead of... (coughs) I mean, in the Vinaya commentary, Vinaya, they were talking about some really poor people who would see like the king being a robe to the temple. There's no way they could afford that. But they just rejoice in it. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And that rejoicing, you know, in the giving, that they got so much merit out of that without having to pay anything. It's a cheap way of making lots of good karma.
How does one get through the fear that is holding back from becoming better and doing more in the service of others? In holding the fear that is holding one back from becoming better. Look, even that judgment of becoming better. Aren't you already good enough? You want to become better? Why? Sometimes trying to become better makes you much worse. You're judging yourself. Instead, make peace with who you are. Care for yourself. You know, sometimes when I said about, I say, disabled people, or a person with some deformity or something, or a person, say, with schizophrenia or um, Down syndrome, do you want to be better? Anyone who tries to cure these things is saying, you know, your Down syndrome is not good enough. You feel demeaned. So instead of trying to become better, even yourself, try to be at peace with who you are. Be kind. Don't try and cure, but care. And doing more in the service of others, even like doing service of others, is nowhere near as good as doing service for us. Not just others, you're included. Because otherwise you tend to get burnt out serving others and you forget there's another person in this universe is also important, which, which is oneself, or one's non-self. Or there are five candles bearing your name. So you have to look after yourself as well as others. And then, the fear is not there anymore. You're doing whatever is going to be kind and good for everybody, you included. Where's the fear? In the breath meditation it says, set up mindfulness in front of him. What does this mean? In front of him is a wrong translation. What is in front of who? Where is in front of me? Sometimes that's why people say the nose, because that's in, it's not in front, you don't live behind the nose. You know, sometimes, you know, in the olden days, I remember just when, I remember the name now, Dr. Christian Barnard, he did the first heart transplant. And that shocked many people because a heart transplant, they thought that's who you are in your heart. And they pointed to themselves, you know, that you're in here. And so they wondered what they're going to wake up as after they got their transplant. But you're not in here. Sometimes people ask you to point to yourself, where are you? They say, in here somewhere. Brain transplant, that's not where you are. So in front of what? It doesn't mean that in the Pali. It means to make the setting up of mindfulness the priority. Make it first. Not in front of the list of things you have to do. So make mindfulness the most important first of all. And what does that actually mean? It doesn't mean just, you know, in, in your nose or whatever. It means that you set up what is mindfulness, and I give a very quick uh, meaning of that, is present moment awareness and silence. If you're in the past or future, that's not really mindful. The past, you only remember part of it. The future hasn't happened yet, so you're projecting in the present moment, and within the silence, you're not giving it a name. As I said, I think in this morning's talk, Lao Tzu 
sees a beautiful sunset, if you give it a name, wow, what a beautiful sunset. You're not mindful of the sunset anymore. You're mindful of the words. It's amazing just how much people live in words rather than the thing itself. And if you stop all that um, descriptions, then a lot of times you say, this can't be a limiter. You're watching the words again. Shh. Just enjoy it. See what happens. And that's one of the reasons why if you see me doing these guided meditations or even just talking about the opening the lotus with mindfulness and kindness, you don't go straight to the breath. You relax the body first of all. And then you get peace. Silence. And once you have silence in this present moment, you can actually say you set up mindfulness. Sufficient to watch the breath. If you haven't got that mindfulness set up yet, you'll find that you can watch the breath, but only through force. And it doesn't actually um, really start the Anapanasati as a Buddha taught it. You have to use force to do that. But if you set up your mindfulness and kindness first, now you find that the mind is ready to be mindful, to be mindful of the breath. In fact, the breath comes towards you. You're just there, and it's so easy to watch. So people usually want to rush ahead and do mindfulness first. Sorry, people rush ahead and try to do awareness of the breath first from the very beginning. It's much better to be mindful first. Set that up, make that strong, give that priority. And then it's easy to watch the breath. Some Western meditators have been increasingly experimental with the use of psychedelics. What are your thoughts on that? That's stupid. I say stupid. If there is a medical reason for it, fine. But you don't have to use that. People always want shortcuts. And for psychedelics, I've never seen the Buddha say that right drugs. They say right speech, right action, right livelihood, but not some uh, LSD or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> Western meditators, I, I don't know any Western monks who do that. Or maybe there are overseas or nothing, but it doesn't make any sense. It's against the Buddha's precepts. That's really quite clear. Why do you need that? You get more joy, <coughs> more peace, more sense of purity when you do the setting up of mindfulness in the way the Buddha um, explained present moment awareness and silence rather than using anything else which you know, distorts your perception. Dear Ajahn Brahm, I got my arm stuck in the stupa late last night as I reached for the statue of the Buddha. <laughs> Why? I have wriggled free and appreciate being liberated. Now, um, every now and again when we finish the retreat, you will write your appreciation forms and I will be able to see by your handwriting 
Should I do that? Find out who it was. You know what I said. You put your hand inside the Buddha. If you can touch the Buddha inside, you'll find true love. You know, I fell in love many years ago. Really hopelessly in love. Because when I said this, you'll fall in true love. I didn't say who you fall in true love with. You fall in true love with the Buddha himself. So be careful, you did touch that Buddha. That's who you fall in love with. Ajahn, you seem fairly good-natured at heart. Do you have a... <laughs> Thank you, fairly. It's only fairly. Yeah. Do you have advice for people who may be naturally more predisposed to negativity or judgment? Yes. Be very negative towards negativity. And don't judge your judgment. <laughs> Make peace, be kind, be gentle. And why are you negative or why do you judge? When things go wrong, what does things going wrong mean? It means you didn't fulfill your expectation. What did you expect from this retreat? If you expected nothing, that's all you're getting. <laughs> and you'll be very satisfied and very happy. You got what you wanted. <laughs> okay, remember this, this story. I'm sure you've heard this once, but anyway, it comes up. About this uh, Zen monk. And he was, not, he was hard to get any support. And he was uh, walking from place to place. No one would give him any alms food. And then he came, someone told him, if you want some food, there's a very top-class restaurant close by, and it's run by a Buddhist. She's very faithful. So I'm sure she would give you something. So he went up there, and he saw the owner of the restaurant. And she said, but first of all, I've got to prove that you're a Buddhist. So give me some Dhamma first of all, and then I can give you a meal if I know you're a Buddhist. And so I thought, oh, this is easy. So he said, you know, from the Heart Sutra to the lady, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. She said, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. How profound that is. And so she went into the kitchen, and she came back herself with this big plate of food, you know, with the cover they put on to keep it warm. And she gave it to the monk, thank you, monk. And the monk was already salivating. Because he knew there was a lot of food there and very delicious. And so he took off the cover, and there was nothing there. And the owner of the restaurant said, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Please eat emptiness, monk. <laughs> oh, maybe that's... Is that being too naughty? <laughs> anyway, in deep meditation, one is supposed to have heightened awareness, yet lose all five senses at the same time. How does that work? Because you've got the sixth sense, the mind. And that is a purity of mindfulness. When you die, 
Have you got no mindfulness left, even though the eyes go, the ears go, no smell, taste, touch is all turned off when you die? You have actually some wonderful mindfulness when you die. The mind continues on for a while, but then you will know what real mindfulness is. When the five senses disappear and you're mindful of the objects of the mind. Things like peace, silence. In what sense does that belong? Is that something you see, or hear, or smell, or taste, or touch? It belongs to the mind. That's why I encourage people to uh, develop the sense of present moment awareness and silence, or peace if you wish, because that allows you to get in touch with the mind and the mindfulness gets much stronger. You don't get lost in the five senses. You get, uh, what's it called, like secluded from the five senses. You know, that's what we call, we waker. That's the word they use for the first jhana. Vivicha kamehi, vivicha akusalehi damehi. Vivicha means separated from, apart from. And again, the kamehi there, k-long-a-m-e-h-i, that doesn't mean the law of karma, that means the five senses. That's how it's used. And so it's apart from the five senses. They disappear. And then you're really mindful. Dear Ajahn, thank you so much for teaching us. I'm so happy to be here. I'm very glad because you can't be anywhere else except here. <laughs> Some people ask me, are you going to be here next week? Yes. I'm always here, but sometimes here is somewhere else. For this whole life I've been a monk, I've always been here. Here sometimes is in US, here sometimes is in UK. I'm always here. It's like whenever I go, say, traveling to, uh, to Singapore. I never fly to Singapore. I never fly once. All I do is sit in the plane. The plane does the flying. I do the sitting. <laughs> but many of you may already have mentioned that word Singapore maybe you start thinking about Singapore, then you're not here. Your body is, but your mind is somewhere else. Anyway, the glows that I perceive during meditation become brighter on the in-breath and dimmer with the out-breath. If that's the case, just breathe in and stop breathing out. <laughs> that's logic. Are these glows limited and is it normal? Thank you very much. You know, it doesn't really matter where it's normal. Why do you always want to fit in and be normal? It's much more fun being idiosyncratic and being unique. Do you reckon? You know that this was an old story that in your, when you're a teenager, you may know this from you know, your kids, when you're a teenager, you're really concerned what other people think of you. You really want to fit in, you know, because that's where you get your partner from. And you get lots of friends that way. And when you're in your 40s or 50s, there's a time when you, as they say in English, you go, don't give a damn what other people think of you, just go and do it anyway. 
you've got self-confidence. When you get into your 60s or 70s, you finally discover that people weren't thinking about you anyway. <laughs> you could have done all of that a long time ago. Of course you care for others, but you don't do things to impress another person. So just try to please others is not part of your repertoire. Is it normal? It's okay. So those glows that you perceive during meditation become brighter on the in-breath and after a while they become brighter all the time. And after a while they're so bright you can't see your breath anymore. Breath has done its job. Hi Ajahn, I have a fun suggestion for you. Uh oh. <laughs> Maybe you can prank the Buddhist community by setting up an enlightenment testing centre. Okay, sounds good. So far, so good. Send media senior monks to shadow other monks for three to six months. And at the end of it, make an assessment of who, who is enlightened. That's like, sorry? We respect the nuns much more than that. That's a silly thing to do. As I say, we respect you too much to do things like that. You've got to be very sharp to get these get out phrases, <laughs> otherwise, I'd be in big trouble. Then let everybody know after a few years that it's all a prank. And if you signed up for the qualification or strongly supported or was against it, then they were probably not enlightened. I agree with you. Sometimes that, oh, you see, all these people when they come to the monastery, they always park in the wrong places if you come in a car. So I thought of setting up the prank of giving parking fines on our Katina ceremony. I think we make much more than we get in the donation box. <laughs> Anyway, he, he, he. Yeah. Sometimes we might get to shadow the other monks for three to six months. Crikey. <laughs> What's better than that? They get these little um, devices you can stick on people. Yeah, little sensors. You know, which are so small. You can, like, you know, offer the monk or the nun a teddy bear. <laughs> and apparently, yeah, GPS tracker and a little in the eyes there. They're not realised they've got cameras inside. <laughs> so you take it back to your cootie and we can see what you've been up to. <laughs> Is that a good idea? You know, one thing which I really object to with that is like part of being in a Sangha, or even part of, you know, being members of the. Uh, Singapore meditation. What is it called again? <laughs> you, you guys. No, not Buddhist fellowship. We, sorry, Bodhinyana Singapore is. We give the name Bodhinyana for that because I trust you. And it's really important to trust one another. So you don't go checking up on people. You have this wonderful trust. You say, well, you know, it's your journey through samsara. If you want to meditate or not meditate, it's totally up to you. That's also the case that some monks can read people's minds. 
but I will never do that for you. That's like an intrusion. And even if somebody says, oh, please, Ajahn Brahm, read my mind and help me. I'll tell you, no, you read your own mind. So you develop enough mindfulness and perception of clarity that you can do it for yourself. Otherwise, it's like you're being controlled by somebody else. And that's not fair in any way. If you've read a couple of people's minds, you never want to read any mind again because it's just junk mail. It's like pulp fiction. <laughs> Honestly, who would, who would want to read your mind? <laughs> okay. I think Buddhist cosmology is very beautiful and I like how there is an underlying logic between every being's circumstances and realm of birth based on karma. However, sometimes I'm not sure where to draw the line between fact and metaphor. Example, okay, where the... I'll uh, scribble this out. Are the heavens and hells just states of mind like how you refer to the jhanas at the four, as the four abodes. The idea of the jhanas as the four abodes is very powerful and very true. But when it comes to the heavens and the hells, the, the hell realms I'm always, I don't know why, they're kind of easier to explain that this is the idea of punishment, self-punishment. And... I often pointed out the doors of every hell realm are open. You can walk out whenever you want. It's the idea of you've done something wrong, you misbehaved and sometimes you've hurt somebody else. And you put yourself down to hell and you make that hell appropriate as you think. And you stay there as long as you think you deserve to pay off your karmic debt. No one else tells you where to go or you know, how long to stay down there. And so, if ever you want to leave any hell realm, you can. And a beautiful thing which gets you out of any hell realm is kindness, compassion. So what do I want to do this for? You know, I apologize to my mother or father if I did something bad, but punishing anybody doesn't help anything at all. So if you go to a hell realm, it is self-punishment out of guilt. It's one of the reasons why when you see that that is counterproductive to the arising of goodness and the growth in your virtue, then you see it's counterproductive so you don't put yourself down in any punishment at all, ever again. That's called the stream winner. Stream winner can never go to one of the lower realms. They don't belong down there. It's, it's, it's not helpful for you anymore. Instead, as a Buddhist, you acknowledge your mistakes. If you've done something wrong, you tell somebody. And then you forgive it. No punishment. And the Buddha said, and you make some sort of amends, make sure you don't do that ever again. He said, that is the growth you know, in the spiritual life. All that punishment does, it teaches you to hide your mistakes and faults, not to admit to it. 
and it's the hiding of those mistakes and faults which cause all the prob- a lot of the problems in the world. Imagine if all our politicians, if they made a mistake, could actually own up, say, I'm sorry, that was a mistake, and they would be forgiven, and they would learn from their mistakes, and not think you're a hopeless politician, you cannot lead. We learn from our mistakes, we don't punish ourselves for our mistakes, or punish anybody else. When was the last time I shouted at any one of you? That I scolded you? How often should I have done? Because you would have deserved it. (laughs) You will never do that. Because shouting and making a person afraid just makes you hide those faults. And it also means that you don't grow in wisdom. Just on the last day that I was a school teacher, it was now a very beautiful sunny day in Devon where I was teaching in school. And so I went for a walk, and as I was going for a walk, I saw some of the sixth formers walking towards me. They had their hands, I don't, they were too far away to see what they were doing. But then as I got closer, they put their hands behind their back. And I recognised that straight away. And said, look, I know you were smoking, that's what we used to, I used to do when I was at school. Actually, my friends said I never used to smoke. To hide a cigarette from the, the teacher, they put their hands behind their back and said, that's not a good way of doing it. There's other ways of hiding that cigarette, and the best way of hiding it is not to smoke in the first place. So I, I, I said, I'm not going to report you to the, to the teacher or to the headmaster, even though it's against the school rules, because I know that reporting and getting you punished is not going to help you at all. It just means you're going to be, be more negative and not really understand why we have that rule there in the first place. It's not to avoid punishment. If you try have all these rules and speed cameras, what's the point of a speed camera on the roads? It's just so you don't wreck your life and wreck other people's lives. Once you know the purpose, it's easy to keep those rules. You don't need fines or anything. I've noticed the mind becomes... Oh, that's a cosmology. Oh, can you also explain how the divine eye works? I heard it is likely shining a light to see all the way in a particular direction. No, it's not that. It's just sometimes you can hear things. It is a supernatural because it's not shared by most people. And sometimes, especially in meditation, you can actually see, see... a uh, vision appears to you, and it's a real vision, not imagining it. And that's the weird stuff. Especially how the Buddha said the divine eye, you can see your past lives, or the lives of other people, especially, you know, according to how they get reborn, according to karma. You say you see that, but it's not an image like you're watching on a, uh, an iPad or your iPhone. Your eyes are closed. You can see that image. You know it's real. You know it's real because those five hindrances are gone, and especially the hindrance of doubt. You can check it out afterwards, it is right. I've noticed the mind become very sensitive and subtle on meditation retreat. Yes. Does this mean we need to be doubly cautious about what thoughts we allow engaged with because they are amplified? 
because they are amplified, you can see they're dangerous. It's like you see a snake very clearly. It's not a twig or a branch which has fallen from the forest. Because your mind becomes sensitive and subtle, it also becomes much more discerning, much more aware, and you can understand where the dangers are. So causing suffering, paranoia, crikey, paranoia doesn't help. That's not the wise mind. Uh, state of consciousness also empower creative manifestations such that the paranoid rumination is now likely to occur, occur and come true. It, as your mind becomes sensitive and subtle, it overcomes uh, fear. My preceptor, he was, uh, he's actually the, he was the head monk of Thailand for quite a few years, and he told me, he knew I was a meditator, I thought he was just a great scholar, but he told me personally that when he was uh, being trained as a monk, that was in the island of Gotsamoy before it became a tourist attraction. And his teacher taught him meditation and sent him into a coconut plantation to do some meditation. And so he was sitting there under a coconut tree, they had a lot of those in Gotsamoy, and as he was sitting there, he did a meditation for a couple of hours. He got nice and peaceful. But then when he came out of meditation, he saw a big snake coiled up in his lap. And he said he recognized the snake. His teachers and parents had taught him about that was a really dangerous one. If it bit you, you're in really big trouble. And he said when he was coiled up there, the weird thing was he had no fear at all. Even though he knew it was a very dangerous snake. And it wasn't just in front of him, it was coiled up on his lap. And so so that was really weird and wonderful. So had this soft feeling towards that snake, kindness, compassion. And after about another 10 or 15 minutes, the snake just uncoiled and just slid away. And he said, that was actually a sign that meditation was a really good meditation. Because when he came out, fear was just not there. So that's what really should happen when the meditation gets subtle. Fear, and especially paranoia, has just disappeared. And you get quite surprised by that. He was. He said that, that's where he found out for himself some of the powers of this meditation. Okay, this question. What do you do if a person has been traumatized? And there's a certain type of meditation which works amazingly well. And uh, you know I teach whenever I'm in town and outside of the range retreat and Nolamara every Friday night. And there's a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists and therapists go there regularly. And they've told me, to my face, we have permission to practice psychology, psychiatry, all these therapies by going to university. But what really helps is what we learn in this temple from you. And and one of them said, I'd like to invite you to bless this little unit we have just in Perth. I think it was in Beaufort, no, Sterling Street. And it was called the Australian Association of Survivors of Torture and Trauma. It was was called ASSET. I don't know where they got the E from, but anyway... Australian Society of Survivors of Torture and Trauma. And it was especially designed for those refugees 
who came into Australia and the, where they'd come from before, these you know, dungeons, military places, underground, and they had been treated just so badly, tortured, and you know, really badly. And when some of these people said what had happened to them, it did make, even as a monk, your skin crawl. How could a human being do that to another? And they you survive that? And these were people, they'd made it to Australia and on these special visas, and physically they were free, but emotionally they still had these flashbacks and the effects of trauma. Panic attacks for no reason at all. And when I went there to this place, and I asked them, well, why do you invite me to come here? And then they showed me. It actually had the, the instructions on the wall about this way of meditation to overcome trauma. I mean, big trauma. And they say, we got it from you. It works. And that's why we want you to come and see our place. What that, actually how it does work, first of all, you have to have the feeling of safety. These things can never be forced. When you feel you're in a safe place with friends around you, and if anything you know, does go awry, they can be there to make sure you'll be okay. That feeling of safety is first. And then, because these people, they're usually not well, Buddhist even, these uh, traumatized people, usually just sitting in a chair and then closing your eyes, and then it's a kind of meta-meditation. It's based on that story of opening the door of your heart no matter, no matter what. The unconditional loving-kindness. So there they are, they close their eyes. And they imagine these two doors in their chest open up. Just like the two doors you know, into this meditation hall. It opens up and inside their heart is that person who they're at peace with. You know, the little girl who wasn't hurt, who could play with her little sisters or mum and dad. You know, the young boy you know, was at home playing with his friends and wasn't facing a beating. The, and the young woman, the young man, just you know, who was happy. That's already in the heart. But then you look outside of you, you know, through those two doors which are now open, you see that little woman who's raped brutally again and again and again for no reason. The man who was uh, beaten and, and abused. You see those little boys outside. You, who suffered so much. And I'm surprised you survived. And all of those you keep outside. And then you imagine, just like in these aircraft, you imagine the, the stairs, the ladder, goes you know, from inside, outside, down to the ground. And then you greet those little people who are you, which you find it hard to face, because they're reminded of all the pain in which that happened, all the discrimination, all the feelings of hopelessness, 
and you imagine those people outside. That's you. And you say to them, come inside. The door of my heart is open to all of you, unconditionally, no matter what was done to you. Come inside. And of course it takes a, an amazing amount of courage for those little people in your history, in your life story, to actually walk up those steps. One of the reasons we give these things a lot of pain, we wish they didn't happen, we want to forget about them, hide them in a place where we don't have to recognize them ever again. They keep coming back. Instead, we invite them in. When they come to the top of the stairs, thank you. You're who I am. I will never reject you anymore. I will never sort of uh, stigmatize you. You're who I am. The door of my heart will always be open to you. We can be together. Every one of those traumatized, stigmatized, beaten, raped, <coughs> abused people, you invited one after the other until everyone is inside. It's a powerful teaching because I remember these people who had been through that. I remember just one evening, I tell this story because I will never forget it, of just one of the young men from my youth group talking to this a lady from, I think, the Middle East somewhere who had been just terribly treated. And then she you know, asked, what happened to you? And when she started to describe this stuff, how can anybody just have endured that? And then this young man said, that he told his words, that's terrible what happened to you. And then she rounded on him and said, you've got no right to say it was terrible. It's made me who I am today. And I will never stigmatize that ever again. I've learned so much. She was really at peace with it. She could tell other people what happened and said that made her the beautiful, wonderful woman she now was. That kind of works. She was never afraid of telling people about it anymore. The trauma had now been transformed. Just like I keep trying to say, the most beautiful trees in this forest are the ones which have been damaged by the storms, by the fires, which are just twisted and bent. It's changing your attitude about what you think is acceptable and what is beautiful. The dog poo gives the fertilizer to the mango tree. It doesn't desecrate it. You know where that story actually came from, the, the dog poo and the, the mango tree? It was that place in the north of Thailand where I spent my sixth range retreat. And there was this wonderful cave which I used to go in to meditate. Most of the day I'd have my uh, one middle of the day in the morning and then go in the cave just until late afternoon and meditate. And as you walked outside that cave, there was a papaya tree. 
And that was the sweetest, most delicious papaya I've ever tasted, ever in my life. And the reason was because that was a spot as all the bats came out from that cave. That's where they pooed. When they went back inside, they pooed there again. And so it was the, like the, the lavatory for all the thousands of bats in that cave. And that's why, you know, sometimes I tell the lay people, now there was a, a ripe papaya on that tree. I said, can you please, I can't say get it for me. I say, can you please contemplate that? <laughs> and they knew the monks speak. So they would get the ladder and take Because if I didn't do it that morning, the birds would all eat it. Because they knew there were such delicious mangoes. And that's where that story came from. The beautiful papaya tree. And I, didn't, I don't really eat that much fruit. But those papayas, you'd eat the whole papaya, the whole thing. It was gorgeous. But anyway, that's about the story about trauma. And you know what happened? I never thought that would work that way. But then when I went there and saw the results, I was just so happy just how little teachings which you give. And I, I never taught it that way before. I just said, open the door of your heart is a beautiful thing to do. But it was just one of the psychologists heard that and adapted it to people who needed it more than anybody else. People who have been tortured. Unfortunately, there's more and more people like that in the world. I think Singapore is a pretty lucky country. Australia is too, but there's still some people, even in Australia, get abused. You can rescue them and give them freedom of body, but to give them the freedom of the mind as well. That was, that was awesome. And to be able to see that, and see that you know, you're half responsible, those psychologists, therapists, whatever they called themselves, in that unit were mostly responsible. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, it's only just nine o'clock. Okay. I, I can't refuse this one. Sometimes I'm so relaxed during meditation I feel like farting. <laughs> but I hold back. Should I hold back? That's being, that's being a control freak. You shouldn't hold back. You should sit in the back. <laughs> so now you know why all those people sitting in the back while they're sitting there. Okay, thank you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yeah, okay. There's a few questions left. And I, I did repeat that I didn't have time. Did you hear about the agnostic with insomnia and dyslexia? He stayed up all night wondering if there really was a dog. How do you misspell dog? G-O-D. Okay. Remember that joke about the guy uh, who went to see the oncologist and he said, uh, you've got two things wrong with you. You've got really bad cancer, but you've also got dementia. He said, well, at least I haven't got cancer.
tell. <laughs> okay, very good.